Welcome to a new season of Power Lunch, this time not just with one, but two familiar voices. My name, as always, is Nick Rawson. Aside from working in public relations and playing the piano you're listening to, I'm the host of this podcast interviewing remarkable people of power, politics and press over a luncheon taking place one more time at Copenhagen's restaurant Marshall. And with me today is once again Mihailo Bodonik, having bestowed us the honor of giving his last interview as ambassador of Ukraine to Denmark before heading home almost two years after the Russian invasion. Please enjoy and remember to subscribe. Smells delicious. It is indeed. I hope that the food will be just as good as the first time that we met. This is, uh, in fact, the first time, uh, the, the, the table we met at, the first time where we met, which is now about uh, two years ago. Uh, it was in February uh, 2022. You're right, yes. Um, it was in February 2022 where we first met. It was two weeks prior to the invasion of Ukraine, which made the interview quite remarkable because we talked about what could potentially happen in the future if, when, and if matters were to happen. And as a matter of fact, <clears throat> what happened happened. Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February, 2022. And since then, the world has never been the same, but especially Ukraine has never been the same. So I thank you very much for coming back here uh, on the back end uh, of uh, your tenure now to give the last interview and to sum up what has happened in that meantime. And Mikhailo, on that end, how has the past two years gone for you? Well, thank you once again, Nikolai, for the invitation. And I do remember our first meeting, and you were right, we spoke about yeah, the potential in invasion that the Russians started building up the troops, actually not started, but almost yeah, was very close to the border. And we all hope that Putin will not take this horrible decision, but it happened, and you, you rightly mentioned what happened that happened. So now, yeah, two years of war. Honestly, it's, yeah, I would never expect that my mission in Denmark will be like that. Before I was appointed as ambassador, I had a, a phone call from the presidential office. And uh, yeah, the colleague, deputy head of the office, he told me that the president has an intention to appoint you as ambassador to Denmark. And of course, for me, it's, it's in my view, it's, it's, it's very good achievement in my career. So I was happy about that. I said, yes, that would be fantastic. And I, I would be proud to, to serve here. But when I was planning my mission to Denmark, definitely it was not something that I would expect yeah, in reality would happen. So first we came with, with little daughter and, and son and just after maybe a year of our stay in Denmark, suddenly COVID came, you all remember, yeah, so for the diplomats, COVID restrictions, it was almost a very deadly situation. So nothing was open, no meetings, no conferences, uh, no events, no nothing. I mean, that, that was really a very challenging period of time. But now, looking back, I think it was one of the best uh, for me because you at least could have uh, plenty of time with your children and family. And when the war started, uh, right after, actually, we slowly recovered from COVID. So, of course, uh, that was yet another challenge, which is the, 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 the heaviest maybe in my life. But uh, looking back again, what we did together was Denmark and Danes and Danish government. I think we can be all proud of ourselves. I think uh, as well um, that uh, it would be fair to say that well, for all of us, the, the past five years have been possibly, well, the worst half decade uh, for many decades. You had uh, COVID, as you mentioned, uh, then you had the invasion of Ukraine. You have had now most recently Israel-Palestine, uh, the conflict and a whole lot of other uh, macroeconomical events in the world stage, which has made the first half of this uh, decade so far uh, very terrible. But I just want to come back to um, what you said there about that you never ex uh, anticipated uh, your tenure to turn out the way it did and the situation in Ukraine. And obviously, uh, objectively seen, uh, that's true. But then again, a part of the Ukrainian narrative has been the whole time that Ukraine has been uh, in a military conflict since 2014. Isn't that true? 
Yes, actually for us it's true. For us <clears throat> the war started in 2014 when Russians occupied Crimea and then started slowly occupying the Donbas area, eastern part of Ukraine. And that's uh, that's true that actually this war lasts already more than almost yeah, 10 years, will be next year. So at some point Ukraine of course was not in a very good situation for the last decade. But on the other point, we didn't have such an open invasion, full-scale invasion, and uh, which first moved more than, you know, every third person in Ukraine had to leave his home. So it's it's huge. One in three. One, yeah, one in three, yeah. So Has almost, been dispersed. Yeah, 14 millions of Ukrainians moved from their homes. Some of them moved to abroad, some of them moved to western part of Ukraine. But imagine that every third has to leave his house. So it's, it's crazy and you cannot describe it yeah, how people are feeling. Many of them were moving from exactly the, this Donetsk and Luhansk area where the, for the first time they had to escape from Russian occupation. So they moved a little bit further from their hometowns, from Donetsk, from Luhansk. And they hope that they will have again, yeah, somehow a new life. But now they are forced for the second time to leave their houses and to move even further. So it's it's for for the families in Ukraine. It's very challenging and a very horrible uh, period of time. Aside what you read in the news about this, uh, <coughs> about the situation, about uh, the war, tell me, uh, how has this affected the? Well, the national spirits uh, of Ukraine and uh, everyday perception of being Ukrainian and living in a in a country which is in fact in a state of war, the mental health, not even uh, uh, to mention of average Ukrainians. How how has this affected your country and uh, your people? I will be very frank with you. <clears throat> it affected the Ukrainians tremendously. And you may follow, I mean, different, let's say, part uh, of where we have uh, changed the attitude towards ourselves. First and foremost, we have never witnessed, at least yeah, in my life, I uh, will soon turn 46, that Ukrainians were so united as one nation. This war, this invasion actually united all of us. <clears throat> we became as one family. And uh, the only goal we have is to win the war, and that's it. So we put aside all our, let's say, different opinions about different things in the country, uh, maybe some disagreements, maybe some, some alternative, let's say, view of, of the developments. We all suddenly realized what is at stake. At stake is our survival and the future of ourselves, the future of our children, the future of the, of the country. And so we realized that yeah, if we will not be like one strong fist, then uh, Russians have a very big chance to occupy the country. Uh, so I think what struck me, you know, to the bottom of my heart is exactly this, how to say, volunteer movement, this readiness of Ukrainians to help each other, this understanding of, of, of the level of the evil and uh, the understanding that, yeah, but if we will continue, you know, being a little bit like self-focused, selfish, then uh, we will lose our country one by one. But but I think that most people also observing the Ukrainian resistance uh, feels that uh, you have united uh, on an unprecedented level uh, to counter this uh, foreign threat uh, trying to enter your country. Um, but I'm also curious as to uh, how uh, that spirit, and the state of that spirit is here now close to two years after uh, the invasion uh, and what is in fact the status quo because you hear a lot of things from uh, different uh, media outlets um, where they uh, give some well um, some brief insights into what it is on a ground level but the greatest scale of things I think a lot of people have a hard time actually deciphering what is the status of the war what are the casualties? You mentioned here that a third of the, your countrymen have been dispersed and are living in uh, different sides. What are the casualties on both sides? What, 
Look, what I mean, are the future outlooks? Yes, if you allow me also to speak a little bit more about the spirit of Ukrainians. You know, we as the country uh, or as a nation never had our uh, country or state uh, for a very long period of time. We were always under somebody's occupation for like hundreds of years. And that created a kind of the feeling among the Ukrainians, maybe I'm wrong, but at least this is my personal opinion, that we belong like to the second sort of, of people. Because they were always Russians or, or like, you know, owners of the life and we were always, you know, oppressed by, by the invaders. And only when we got independence in 1991, Ukrainians started building its own state. But still having this feeling, we were not the richest country in the world. So we, we had, you know, such a feeling that we are not uh, the nation, you know, which, which, let's say, should be proud of itself. But suddenly, because of the war, Ukrainians realized that, yeah, we are capable to do more than we were thinking about ourselves. And I think it's, it's a, unfortunately on this very sad, let's say, uh, background, but we finally realized that to be as a nation, to be a proud nation matters a lot for self-understanding and also for building the country. So I think Putin achieved the opposite goal of, from his invasion. He wanted to oppress, he wanted to occupy the country. And on the opposite, Ukrainians started respecting themselves much more than they were before the war. Started thinking that we are really very strong nation. But hard times indeed also yes, make uh, yes, hard men. Yes. And I, I remember one of the things you said back in when we met first time is, and I, I have to say that uh, I, uh, I thought in my quiet mind that uh, you were maybe... Uh, exaggerating the Ukrainian capability to withstand uh, Russian aggression at that point, but that was obviously speaking on a hypothetical level. What we saw uh, following the invasion was a much higher resilience uh, uh, and, and, and greater resistance than I could possibly have ever imagined. I think most people, if you ask most Danes, they would have said that, oh, well, Kiev uh, will fall within a couple of weeks uh, following the invasion, but it didn't happen. You've actually managed to uh, hold out uh, for two years and just <coughs> coming back, uh, uh, to your point about the national spirit, I know that, for example, Finland, my wife is from Finland, and uh, the Finnish national identity was very much born there a hundred years ago, uh, once the country gained independence, uh, um, uh, from that point, um, I believe it was Sweden. Uh, and there are those points in time in where people uh, experience uh, very hard oppression uh, or uh, face uh, the, the, the gravest of challenges and they're coming together that so I completely buy into that premise as you say about uh, Ukrainians come together putting aside the differences but that being said and this is also something that's being reported in Danish media from time and again is that the the unison uh, resistance uh, is not as intact right now as it was uh, a year or almost two years ago when the invasion no, happened. What do you have to say about look, that? Honestly, in my view, the resistance is still the same. Otherwise, we would fall. Second, I mean, what, uh, what is also... The war became a new reality for us. So the war, of course, became part of our regular life, so to say. So it, it's on one hand a little bit yeah, dangerous development because you cannot get used to killings, you know, and murders and, and a lot of things. On the other hand, we cannot, you know, people cannot uh, keep going, uh, you know, without uh, releasing or without yeah, giving some relief in their, you know, uh, reaction to what's, what's happening. So we realized that, yeah, you rightly mentioned, we are capable fight we are capable to resist and moreover we actually last year we liberated quite a big part of the territories which russians occupied so we are capable also to defeat russians and How, it, sorry yeah that that was around 60 percent of the territories which russians occupied at the very first couple of months we returned back the control of these territories how, how, big, uh, how big a part of Ukraine is today controlled Look, now, by Ukraine and how big a part yes, is occupied Now, Russia? if you're speaking also about uh, Crimea and Donetsk and Luhansk uh, in the past and the newly occupied territories, so I would say that it's between 
15 and almost um, 19 or 20 percent of the territories are occupied. Okay, and, uh, and at, at, at its at its, it than, at its most dreadful moment, how big a part was then occupied? Yeah, yeah. How uh, uh, so? In in the past, only Crimea was occupied, you know, and a little bit of the at east. its worst point, how big a part of Ukraine was occupied by Russia? At the worst point, uh, we have to check, but I think that that was yeah much bigger, so few more uh, regions. So there were maybe twenty five or thirty percent, okay. at least of the whole territory. So you've reduced that to we, about we reduced to, twenty. To, yes, less than twenty. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so it was a big success for us. And also it was kind of the turning point in our view that our partners also realized that Ukraine will not, you know, uh, give up, that Ukraine is capable to, to fight and then Ukraine will resist. And the, the only thing Ukraine needs is help with weapon and help financially and, and other humanitarian support. So for us, it was you asked how people are living now within you know these two years. Yes, people people are exhausted. People are tired. It's it's uh, understandable. The war has very negative implication on you because you cannot plan your life. And without having some plans, it of course it frustrates or it it makes you you know. Uh, in a very pessimistic mood or how to say so you should you should still feel that there is kind of a light at the end of the tunnel and uh, the war itself it, of course is is trying to take it off from from you so for people now they live only today and maybe plan something for tomorrow or the day after tomorrow nobody can plan things you know years ahead in our situation it's quite challenging for the population but Again, asking about the spirit of people, about the mood, etc. When you talk to them, everybody of them tells that, look, we are prepared to suffer more, but our goal is to have our own state. And that's very impressive, because for many reasons, I may name you a lot of you know, explanations why they are uh, behaving this way, because of our history. In, as I said, for the last 350 years, Ukraine was under Russia's occupation. And Russians always wanted, you know, to oppress everything what was related to Ukraine, Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian language, Ukrainian traditions, etc. They were stealing our artists, they were stealing our, I mean, stealing, you know, pretending that they are Russians, you know, they, they, they are, although they were born in Ukraine and they were Ukrainians. So, we also survived through the first and second world war between the two wars we had a big uh, famine where millions of ukrainians died because of stalin regime policy that yeah so we know our history and we know how russians are treating us and when somebody are asking me oh, why don't you sit on the table why don't you negotiate with russians maybe give them some territories and they will be happy it's very wrong approach because we know from our past that Russians will never stop on it. And moreover, <clears throat> it's like, you know, we cannot leave the people who are on the occupied territories because, I mean, they will be under occupation. And being under occupation, we know that they will undergo through different tortures, through different system which will oppress, which will, you know, I mean, for them, they will not become as human beings. And many of the you know, activists, many of people who served in the public sector or whoever who wanted, who were fighting for the independence will be then again deported to Siberia, to a new gulag camps or whatever. So we realized that we cannot you know, allow Russians to occupy these territories because it will not be a long lasting peace. It will be just a small break before they will continue a new invasion again being more prepared for that. But the, the Russian narrative uh, goes on that, for example, in Luhansk, um, um, <clears throat> that they have in fact, uh, well, not in fact, but that they have liberated it. That's the Russian narrative, and that there is a majority of Russian-speaking people there that uh, will support uh, uh, Russian uh, governance uh, there on it. But there are uh, so many uh, intertwined uh, uh, cultures and, and, and people living in, in each of these respective regions and uh, what they will point to is that they have had, uh, as you said, occupied it for 350 years. Putin argues that it's been part of Russia for 350 uh, years. So my question to you is, how do you ever 
come to a conclusion or a, uh, a common ground with uh, uh, Russia? Is that even possible uh, on this issue or will they just stop at nothing? Look, I mean, uh, what, what they are saying, it's a, a pure, you know, fake and we all know it. And uh, if, you know, you have, if you feel very bad, and so then you, you do not stay in that area, you are trying to escape. But nobody was trying to, to go out of Donetsk or, or Wuhan, so they were not asking for liberation. So it's a pure, you know, fake story which Putin created, very similar to Hitler's approach when he wanted to... Uh, Anschluss yeah, to make Anschluss of Austria, where yeah. again German-speaking yeah, uh, people, and and so th this is nothing new, and we know they are playing with that for a long, long time just to justify their invasion. But we live in the 21st century, where everybody, including Russians, signed quite a big number of agreements with Ukraine, recognizing our territorial integrity, territorial sovereignty, and independence. Moreover, they were also obliged to protect us if somebody would attack Ukraine. And they were also obliged not to attack us under Budapest Memorandum. That's a 2014... Uh... It's not only... Uh, before, it was 1994, the Budapest Memorandum. And then we signed, I think, in 1998, or before that, we had to change uh, uh, interstate uh, treaty or agreement on friendship and collaboration where it was very clear that, you know, Ukraine, including Crimea, is part of Ukraine, so Russians were recognizing the international borders of Ukraine. And then in 2014, and you in were in 2014, negotiations of in, the... And in 2014, they just simply invaded, because the problem was that back then, Yanukovych was the president, and he suddenly decided not to, con to sign an association agreement with the European Union. And people disagree. Uh, was that uh, approach, so they went to the street to protest. First and foremost, you remember that, that these were younger people, so students, and they <clears throat> went to the streets before the Vilnius summit, and, uh, after the government uh, took a decision to postpone the signature of association agreement, and it all ended up in Maidan and protests, and yeah, you remember then Yanukovych ordered also to use force, Hundreds, more than hundreds Ukrainians were killed during the, these attacks from the police officers. So we and then he fled the country and then Russians used the momentum when Ukraine was uh, very weak. So they sent the so-called green man, as they say, yeah, the, the Russian black fleet yeah, uh, in Crimea and occupied the territories and then they created an extra. But, uh, but, but, talking, but, but, but talking about casualties, Mihailo, uh, tell me... Look, I mean, what, what honestly, is the I, don't, I, I don't have any, any exact numbers uh, of that. And I think uh, so far our general staff doesn't tell it. Maybe on purpose, maybe not to create, you know, a lot of pain uh, among the people because we realize that we are losing the best people in, in the country because... If you look at our soldiers, they are motivated, but they most many of them are like voluntarily joined the army. So I have, you know, you asked me also when how the war uh, affected me. I mean, we got the the message from our foreign minister. Uh, we have a, a chat group, you know, and he just SMSed. I think around four o'clock at night. It was morning, early morning, 24th of February. That guys like wake up. The war started. And that's the way I got the, the, the information about the, the, this, the, the beginning of this open invasion. And uh, how, how did you get that information? Uh, through the SMS, as okay. I said. Yeah. In so the morning the minister, of the 24th? Yeah, it was, yeah, we were sleeping, yeah. It was four o'clock in the morning, yeah, so at night still. And uh, yeah, the minister just wrote us an SMS in the chat group. We have a, a chat group of, of ambassadors. That look, one, how did you like, react? Well, it was, I mean, of course, it was a shock. I remember the first thing I, I did, I, I called my father-in-law. I woke him up and I said, look, take the grandchildren, take also wife of my spouse brother and quickly go out of Kyiv because Russians started invasion. So grab some passports, money, whatever you have and do it very quickly. So, that, so I started calling also my uh, cousin sister, yeah, telling the same, yeah, that look, if you can, take uh, children and go out of the city first, you know, so the first to save uh, adults and, and, uh, and children. So that was my first reaction. And then uh, we, I, I just quickly uh, 
put on my, my clothes and then went to work. And since then, so I was at the embassy. The very first day of the, the embassy was, uh, the embassy's email was hacked by Russians, so it was not working. Our webpage also was not. It was coordinated as cyber it was, attack. Yes, it was coordinated cyber attack. So we lost communication. So we started creating quickly. And again, everything was done in a very fast way using this uh, chat communication yeah, in, in uh, WhatsApp or, or Signal. And also because of the COVID, we already like get used to have online meetings uh, using Zoom or, or, or different tools. So we had then uh, some online meeting with the minister and uh, uh, and uh, the representative of the presidential office and we started talking. So almost every, maybe the first two, three months, like I remember, we had maybe two times a week a meeting was online meeting was the presidential office receiving the instructions, receiving the requests for help, yeah, some uh, yeah, orders for, for, for actions, etc. So that, that was really, I mean, you may imagine, as I said, because of that group, we have embassies yeah, all over the world, so in Japan, in, in the United States, in Europe, and there is a time gap. And every, like, you know, I remember the first couple of days, so almost every minute we received some SMS. And we were, you know... Must have been very stressing. It was very stressing. So I didn't sleep probably until May. Uh, well, so we, we, we always were afraid of losing some inf important information. We maybe, what if the president... Well, losing someone. Yeah, or, or losing someone, of course. So every time, you know, every morning you start from reading the, the media immediately, what happened at night. But as I said, I think the first uh, definitely couple of weeks we almost didn't sleep because at night our ambassador in the United States was SMSing, you know, some information to Capital, and we all could. could How read many it. ambassadors are there in total, Ukrainian? I think we have around uh, maybe a little bit less than 100, maybe 90 ambassadors abroad, and uh, around uh, 30 general consulates. So we have like 120, 125 people, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And quickly you rose to, uh, well, uh, to a to an unexpected fame in uh, in Denmark. I think um, most people would have never heard your name or seen your face around in television. Uh, but uh, from more or less one day to the other, you were suddenly, uh, well, the talk of the town and one of the most recognizable faces within the dip diplomatic community in uh, in Denmark, which I presume must have also uh, given you another uh, level of of stress uh, in not just handling the affairs back at home, but also responding uh, uh, as the uh, uh, Look, well, as the plenipotentiary of Ukraine here in Denmark. Of course, and that that was uh, that was true because you have to do quickly things, which uh, you know where I will I will tell you even the personal stories how things were 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 done in which way so. While my parents, I called them yeah, the first yeah, morning, yeah. So they grabbed some documents and uh, went out of the queue, but only after uh, midday, so after 12 o'clock. So starting from four o'clock, so it took them eight hours to go out of queue because of, you know, a big uh, movement of, of people were trying to, to get out of the city this uh, that time. And then they were uh, going towards Western Ukraine where my mother lives. And so I told them because occasionally my mom was with us in Copenhagen uh, back then. So when the war started, so my mother was already here with us. And uh, my, my parents-in-law, they, they were in Kyiv. So as I said, they were moving. I told them go to western part of Ukraine where my mom lives. But then uh, while they were traveling there, I said, okay, what will you do there? Go straight to the border and, and uh, come to Copenhagen. So they, they had two cars. And they were waiting on the border for four days in order to cross the border. And it was, you know, very chaotic movement. Uh, a lot of people took their children without passports because they were not prepared for that. Also without any documents, uh, green card, for example, insurance for, for, for the cars, which is like obligatory, you should have. You should possess these documents when you are crossing the border with the EU countries. And they were, uh, I was calling the father and he said, okay, we are waiting still on the border. Some people say that the, the border uh, police is like requesting to have these green cards, you know, for the car insurance. And that was for Poland or Moldova? That was also, for, yeah, on, on each, each of the border, such, such big lines, yeah. 
And uh, so they say, and because of that, so not everyone had it, you know, when you are approaching the cross-border point, you know, they are asking, so it takes complications, and so how to issue these papers quickly. So I remember I wrote again a message to a friend of mine who is working in the governmental office, because before coming here, I was working also in the prime minister's office, so I know people there. And I said, look, please, yeah, tell to the border uh, police, let's say, that they should not demand, let's say, such green green insurance, you know, from uh, people, because it, it creates more and more waiting time, and, and uh, not everyone has, I mean, financial reasons. And then, I think he reacted, he said, okay, we will do it, and uh, then the father is calling me like, okay, it looks like, you know, people started, you know, going faster, so nobody was... But, but, but in reality, people not just went faster uh, over the border, uh, a lot of also returned to Kiev. Uh, but they returned only later, but the very first day, there were only maybe few cars going from the border towards Kiev. Okay, how many, uh, how many people was it that fled uh, to Poland? Uh, Poland has been the biggest... Poland has been the biggest, so at the very beginning, I think, we, we, again, we have different figures and it's hard to, to have very correct, precise, but I assume between 7 to 10 millions of, of Ukrainians 7 left, to 10 million? Yeah, left uh, the country. To Poland alone? To, or? No, not well, Poland was the main yeah. uh, the, the entry door, but also to neighboring yeah, Moldova, Romania, uh, depending on which region, for example, people from Odessa, for example, they were going naturally towards Moldova or Romania. And again, people didn't know where to go. So in many cases, it was like they were going to, to their friends or relatives who lived in some countries whom they know. Or if uh, the other way, then, for example, they were choosing more Moldova because it's a relatively cheap country comparing, let's say, to Denmark. So they had some money. They could rent some apartment at least for the first couple of days. So people were going towards these countries in order to find like a shelter. But, but what is then the situation, because they must now be your strategically most important neighbors, Moldova and Poland. What are the current state of the relations uh, with these two countries? There have been, uh, in the past two years, there have been uh, many stories of uh, a potential uh, Russian uprising from inside Moldova. There has been uh, questions about uh, how lenient uh, the Poles will uh, continue to be. Now Donald Tusk is, uh, uh, in office there, uh, and uh, what changes that may bring about, we'll find out in the uh, coming weeks and months. But tell me, what, what's the outlook there for your neighboring situation? Look, I mean, I will tell you the following. Uh, what is my? I worked also in Poland between 2010 and 14, so I know Poles very well. If you look now, or two years ago, or during this war time, I think we have never enjoyed such a strong relations in our, let's say, recent uh, history as during these two years of war and continue enjoying the same. We have huge support from the population of, of the country. We had some, let's say, problems or, or some uh, problematic issues which we were discussing with the former government of Poland because of their election campaign, which caused some, some uh, tensions, let's say, around Ukrainian grain or around uh, truck drivers, yeah, which uh, the Polish truck drivers try to, to block access to the yeah, to the borders uh, for Ukrainian truck drivers demanding some some uh, some things to be done but if you look in general I think I, I'm a strong believer that yeah we have the best ever uh, the closest the warmest and uh, yeah whatever you can describe relations with our neighbors be it yeah in in Poland even in Hungary we have some disputes with Orban and his government yeah over some issues but I'm, I, I have a personal feeling and I know from people who are living there that population supports Ukrainians a lot and, and they are and, ready. And most recently, uh, obviously, Hungary is the big question mark in the international uh, uh, debate concerning Ukraine because uh, most recently the uh, big EU aid package was, uh, uh, well, presumably blocked by, uh, by uh, uh, the uh, uh, Hungarian leadership in uh, Orban. Uh, what has changed on that end? You, you have seen that Orban has had uh, meetings uh, uh, as well uh, concerning Russia. You saw uh, that he met with Zelensky, had a heated discussion in, uh, in Buenos Aires. Uh, uh, upon the uh, um, yeah, inauguration of the uh, inauguration of the Argentinian president, president. Yeah, so that, that's true. tell me about that relationship. Look, 
Yes, we, we have some long-lasting, let's say, issue related to the minority rights. So in our view, we are not violating them. We are trying, on, on the contrary, to help the local Hungarians who live in Ukraine to be more uh, integrated into the Ukrainian society. And one of the ways we think is through education in the schools. So we introduce Ukrainian language as a must in the schools, in some of the, let's say, uh, areas, regional areas in Carpathian region where uh, Hungarians have the majority of people. So we are not against the use of Hungarian language or whatever. What we are telling them that, look, when you have your school education in Ukrainian language, you can continue having Hungarian also language being educated, yeah. But you live in Ukraine, so you, by not speaking Ukrainian language or not teaching, not, not learning it, sorry, you limit yourself in your future career because in Ukraine there is a law saying that, yeah, you should, if you want to be a public servant, you should speak Ukrainian language. I think it's in every country, so it's not something unique for Ukraine. No, no, but uh, yeah, my, and my that was yeah. Is, is I will tell this? you yes, and that that that, and uh, then we we slowly introduce the changes to the law on education and the law to to use Ukrainian language, and it creates created problems for for in yeah in the view of Orban, uh, for Hungarian government because they say that we are trying you know to to close down their their rights, let's say to decrease their rights, which is not true. And so he started, you know, playing this card always whenever he needed something. So in the recent case about our EU negotiations uh, or, or the new package of, of financial aid, I think, unfortunately, uh, Orban yeah, took us just as, as a hostage of the situation because he has his own uh, agenda in relations with Brussels. We know that Brussels is not always happy about yeah, the, the changes in Budapest. Uh, so, uh, yeah, but, uh, I, I was that, just about to ask, is that what it's all about? Yeah, in, in our view, well, it's, it's, yeah, so at least, yeah, that's what they pretend to say, that, yeah, this is the reason why they are vetoing, because they demand from Ukrainian government to return to, to, to the previous, let's say, uh, uh, law, uh, which had more, uh, which, like, in, in their view, had more possibilities for Hungarians, you know, to... Uh, to study only Hungarian language, but it always ended up that yeah, after graduating the school, these U Hungarian uh, children could not enter the university in Ukraine because they were not able to pass the exams, uh, the entry exams yeah, to the university. So they were like only like limited to enter only Hungarian universities. So okay, so 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 there are an array of issues uh, with uh, with Hungary, uh, minor issues on different uh, Look, subjects, but 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 and, and no, also as I well some the, agenda the, with yes, Orban himself. We we uh, are neighbors, so uh, the position of Ukraine is very uh, open. So we say we should talk to the neighbors. We should sit and discuss whatever yeah, difficult questions we have, yeah, or different opinion over these questions we have, and we are ready for that. Yeah, but. It looks like now that, that Hungary having its own, let's say, Hungarian uh, prime minister having its own agenda, he tries to use different leverages uh, to just to reach his own, let's say, uh, uh, goals or, or uh, whatever. To serve his purposes. Yeah, so, so using the other country as, as a hostage of the situation. So I don't exclude that this is also partly the reason why Hungary is not yet, uh, doesn't yet, uh, or, or hasn't yet ratified the agreement about Sweden's membership in NATO, uh, because they are trying also to he play wants to this, use that as this negotiation this, leverage. Yes, with with Brussels, probably. That, that's my guess. I don't know. I, I may assume it. Maybe it's it's wrong. But in the case of the Ukrainian, uh, the aid package from uh, the European Union to Ukraine, what do you believe uh, his, his game well, is there? Uh, again, the game is very simple, so I don't see that he is like against helping Ukraine. He is more uh, thinking how to reach his own, let's say. How he can benefit from it. Yeah, so how to benefit from the situation, yeah, because all the other, let's say, arguments are not uh, uh, good enough, let's say, in terms of persuading, let's say, Brussels to open uh, the, the flow of, of uh, financial, let's say, uh, support from Brussels towards Budapest, yeah, because as I understand, again, I'm not very strong in that area, uh, but uh, at least how I see it personally, so this is the way, so unfortunately Ukraine just fall a victim of that situation. And it's always easy 
you know, to speculate or, or on, on somebody when he, you are in a weak position because we are at war, so we, we don't have time, you know, to, to, to fight different, let's say, fronts, political fronts or whatever. Our goal, ultimate goal is just to survive and to, to, to stop Russians and to push them out of the territories, of our territories, and that's it. All the rest is, let's say, less important or we can, we would like to discuss it a little bit later. But other, probably, countries have different opinion about that, so... Rose of Pride, can it rest, glazed beets and blackberries? Thank you. And the dark sauce, which is this one. Thank you very much. Thanks. So, yeah, I think we will resolve the issue because, uh, again, I may stress here several times that the level of support among Hungarian population is still very high and we feel it so people are very you know keen to help Ukrainians because we live clo close to each other and uh, so the only thing is again yeah big politics probably yeah, that interferes but tell me Mikhailo now um, we rounded off uh, 2023 with well, the horrific uh, Hamas terror attack um, in Israel and um, the equally horrific uh, retaliation that has also been uh, in Gaza, on, uh, which has large part also struck uh, the civilian population uh, there uh, of uh, ordinary Gazans. That has captivated uh, media attention throughout the world and in many ways seconded the Russo-Ukrainian war. How have that impacted you and your cause um, for garnering support for Ukraine? It's true this situation, of course, <clears throat> has a direct implication on, on our course uh, because, you know, the, the level of attention towards, let's say, Ukraine equals uh, the level of support uh, or the volume of aid we receive from the partners. So, Definitely having this, uh, yeah, new <coughs> hot or hostilities, yeah, between uh, Israel and Palestinians and Hamas, most of all, uh, causes yeah, some uh, some concern for us in terms of let's say losing the attention because you you rightly mentioned it. You are in fact in competition for the. Uh, we are not in competition no, but, yeah, but for the, the media attention. attention. Look, at some, I, I hate to be some yeah, cynic, but... Look, sometimes, uh, well, at some point you probably may disagree, but in my view, and it's, it's a little bit, how to say, a dangerous development when... Because when I speak to journalists, they say also, well, how, well, how are you feeling? Because the public attention is now towards yeah, the situation in Israel. And I'm asking, I mean, is it true the public attention is towards there or you as journalists started writing more about the situation because it's something fresh, it, it creates more, uh, maybe more uh, viewers or listeners or uh, attraction of, of more people yeah, towards your media because you want something, something new on the, on the horizon. And some of them or maybe all of them agree at some point yeah, that it's true. You started writing more about yeah because Ukraine is already like you know, uh, everything is yeah, more or less clear. But the, the danger of this situation is that uh, the implication of, of the war in Ukraine and uh, has, you know, very huge, you know, uh, level of, of influence on your country, especially here in Denmark. And that's what we are trying to explain that, yeah, it's very dangerous if you lose attention towards the situation because the war is not over yet. The Russia is still very, very strong, and Russia still has some possibilities and plans to continue occupying the territories. And we are not sure that you, that Ukraine will be the, the the only country for them to occupy. So, in my view, I also said, yeah, it's very important, also for both, in, for for governmental representatives, but also for media representatives, and uh, NGOs, whatever business to continue focusing on the situation which is also close to the uh, border of, of Denmark and has a direct implication on you. And because this is this is something which, which uh, yeah, you should do it. Otherwise, it will play against your national interest. So you're saying that um, given the uh, 
close proximity uh, of Russia, the closer proximity of Russia to uh, Denmark relative to the Levant, um, that there should be a natural uh, reason for why uh, media uh, ought to pay more attention to... uh, I mean, media should pay attention to both situations because in all of the situations people are suffering and it's... No, but it's a a, a fair point. Yes, it's the most uh, horrible uh, thing which, uh, I mean, I personally was crying and looking at these Palestinian children or or Israeli, uh, whoever, yes, I uh, killed by, by by the missiles, but... Uh, what I mean that the situation in Ukraine and the, the potential of Russia to influence on, on the on European continent is much bigger than, maybe I'm wrong, but that's my personal opinion, than the situation around Israel and, and uh, Gaza now. So it may have much bigger implication on so Europe. So because all of us are looking in another direction, what you're saying is that that is taken advantage by Russia? Uh, in order to make as great advances as possible in the... I don't exclude that even the situation when Hamas started this brutal attack on Israel was also provoked by Russians or Russian allies, which we can see also Russia started creating some allies of evils where they have already very close relations with Iran and uh, now we are suffering on a daily basis. So you think that Russia could, have had a, uh, Russia could have had an, an active interest in provoking Hamas's terror attack against yes, Israel? I think, yes. I think you should dig deeper and you will find a lot of interesting things behind it. So it's in Russia's interest to create this. And unfortunately, uh, I'm afraid to say that yeah, some other maybe conflict will, will arise soon again on the, on the map because Russia is so far not uh, successful in the war in Ukraine. So Russia will create new and new So Russia is uh, trying to light up more fuses around in the the vicinity uh, of Ukraine and the Middle East in order to garner not just just, uh, uh, attention uh, otherwere else than their uh, frontier with Ukraine, but also in order to uh, garner more disputes that could divide the landscape, uh, geopolitically speaking, uh, even more Look, in the uh, disputes is the also East. disputes uh, are also important. But first and foremost, the success of us is that we have very powerful soldiers, at the same time receiving uh, military help from from partner countries. And the more conflict situations we will have in the future around us or or closer to us, which will uh, directly, you know touch the the interests of a civilized world, the more needs, uh, including humanitarian and and military support, will be there, which means automatically, yeah, because the resources are limited, so which will automatically mean that Ukraine will receive less because there is a need in another part of the region. And that will be Russia's uh, tactics for sure. Uh, And uh, of course, we should be uh, cautious about this development and be very focused on what's, what's happening. I want to get back to the point you just raised before about more conflicts potentially being more conflicts potentially surfacing here in the coming time, uh, stemming from not just uh, the the Russo-Ukrainian war, but also the confrontation between Israel and Hamas. What could that be? Look, it's hard to say, but many of of such. You're talking about uh, some, yeah. uh, some, some allies? So I, I, of, uh, yes, I, I don't exclude, unfortunately, yeah, I don't know. We should pay attention yeah, to the situation in the Balkans, for example, around Kosovo and, and uh, Serbia. We have also the situation in, in the occupied territories of Abkhazia for a longer period of time. We have also a situation in Transnistria and Moldova, which is currently also uh, having some, yeah, 3,000 or more, I don't know, Russian soldiers on, on, on their territory. So we may have, a, yeah, the, we have a very, you know, sensitive, in my view, situation in African continent. I mean, Wagner Group is well uh, represented in some of the countries there and cre- and have a direct influence on on the leadership of them or so. It's been a long time since I've heard that name, by the way, the Wagner Group. Yeah, Ever since Prigozhin's uh, flight was disrupted, let's put it diplomatically like that, uh, people completely forgot about it. 
Yes, but that's again not people, but the media, and that yeah. is that is. Uh, but media dangerous. connects the news to the people. Yes, and, and that's, I have and to that's, be honest. That's, seeing, that's, I, I've been following the news quite intimately, and yes. you're the first uh, one to mention the Wagner Group uh, for a long, long time. But and that's the danger because, yes. in my view, I think one of the tactics of Russians is to create a corridor between West and East of Africa, Central Africa, where they would have control or almost yeah, controlling the government and controlling the situation and then divide north and south of Africa, divide and control the, the trade routes. And also these coup d'etat which happened in Niger or in other in, in, in Mali and, and so I think we should we should be very you know cautious also about these developments because the situation in Ukraine in general showed that it's not only about Ukraine. I mean The war in Ukraine will definitely change the, the, the international order in the future. So there will be nothing left from the previous time. We will build a new world. And which shape this world will have depends on whether we will succeed or Russia will succeed in the war. That's very simple, unfortunately, to say. That I think there's great truth to that none of us are really uh, paying attention to what is going on in Africa on a whole. Uh, I never see, I follow most uh, larger Western media outlets, I rarely see Africa making the headlines in this time. Yes, unless you have also now the climate, yeah, yes, uh, yeah discussions also, but again, one of so, the So tactics, you're saying that uh, Russia look, and through the Wagner Group have uh, look, a, a big interest? Of course, yeah. Uh, They are controlling Africa. a lot of gold mines or, or diamonds yeah, mines or, 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 uh, or others yeah, in some of the countries. They are helping also, you know, to, to keep in power these uh, some of the dictators which which are in, in those countries. And also uh, these this <coughs> situation makes the possibility, uh, I mean, any any disruptions or, or of a peaceful life there. And it, it can not only be through the use of weapon, but look what Russia was doing with Ukrainian grain. Was not allowing to export of Ukrainian grain, meaning that the the African continent would receive less grain and Africa continent is very much dependent on food. So food for them is equals life. And if there is a huge shortage of some food supply, then what you have at the end, a big wave of migrants going trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea and again going towards Europe. So Russian tactic will be also, and you also see it on the border of Finland and the recent on the border between Belarus and Poland or uh, uh, Baltic countries, that yeah, thousands of migrants suddenly came from Africa or, or which regions were trying to cross the border. So creating migration pressure, it's, it's, it's a huge issue for, for Europe. And again, how to do it? Using different leverages. So besides, as I said, you're creating very potential yeah, war zone or, or hot conflicts, Russia may also play this card again. So creating a new wave of migrants trying to, to cross, uh, to, let's say, uh, attack. So you envision that uh, the Putin's Russia uh, could contemplate to make a civilian invasion of uh, uh, Europe uh, through uh, migrants uh, seeking north and in that way uh, they would be influenced by uh, Well, uh, Russia's influence uh, in Africa in order to uh, overpower yeah. Europe completely in that way. Yeah. That, that's, well, that's I, 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 I do believe, uh, and here's a theory I want to here's a theory I want to share with you, and, and, and just take your two cents on because what you had historically up until the fall of the Berlin War was a division of the world into two blocks, right? Soviet bloc and, uh, and the Western world. And what I've seen more for the first time in this past year, a term that. I've never seen being used that much in mainstream media as today. It's people talking about the global south. For the first yeah. time you talk about the West versus the global south. And the global south in this context, not just being the global south, but global south including Russia. And that Russia uses that constellation with the global south in order to single out the decadent uh, Westerners, Europe, North America, etc., in order to create a, a new fault line in geopolitics of course yeah that's true and again yeah let us not be too naive that you know russia is not doing you know anything besides the war in ukraine russia russia also tries to create different allies 
And uh, when when Russians are saying, look, it's not the whole world uh, is supporting Ukraine, it's just uh, yeah, the minority of countries because only like 45 or 50 countries yeah, are in the Rammstein format supporting Ukraine. And in the world, we have 200 uh, countries plus. So they say it's 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 not the whole world is is against uh, Russia. And this is their narrative. They they are playing with that. And of course, they are trying to build an alternative world to the democratic, uh, let's say, values which we all uh, try to 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 put on the, let's say, on the on top of our life. Uh, so th this is true. And of course, Russia will use any. And the danger here is that Russia will use different uh, tactics to to achieve these goals. And as we can see, also, uh, even including yeah, using force or or uh, bribing or or. Uh, offering different, you know, uh, attractive, let's say, uh, solutions to different things, or sending their uh, private groups like Wagner uh, to s somebody else. Or so, so they have a lot of different leverages. Yeah. So, in my view, it's very important for for us. I mean, those who share the same democratic values, not just sit and wait, but also to act. So, if you want to leave uh, now, now that you're leaving Denmark. Uh, here following the end of your five-year term. What, what cardinal message is it that you want to leave the Danes with uh, as per the, uh, the situation in Ukraine? How are we to relate? I, I have two messages to, to these people. The first one, I would say Mangetak for your help. <clears throat> Believe me, I mean, I discovered uh, your country from scratch almost, let's say, when the war started. And uh, Danes showed uh, that they are very warm inside. They are uh, trying to help. They are raising their children with the feeling that, yeah, if there is a person in need, you should help. And uh, this is, it deserves a lot. It deserves a lot of respect, first and foremost. So I'm personally extremely grateful for everyone. And there were thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who wanted to help and continue helping Ukraine. And my second message will be, again, unfortunately, the situation in Ukraine shows that uh, the amount of help, let's say, which we received is not enough to defeat Russians. So the, my message will be, yes, you are tired. Yes, it takes a lot of effort from your country. Yes, you have a lot of domestic problems and uh, your taxpayers cannot uh, cover all the needs of Ukraine. It's true. But put you know, consider the situation as your contribution to protect yourself as well. Because I am very concerned about the possible developments when one day your government will take a decision to send your troops either to protect your country or to help to win the war in Ukraine because Ukraine alone is not possible, is not capable, you know, to do it. And then you will pay the highest price as we are paying now with the lives of your people. So we would like to avoid this scenario. And to avoid this scenario means that we need continuation of your support. I'm very positive about F-16 developments. I'm sure that very soon we will receive the first jets. And I don't say that it will be a big game changer. We should not be again too naive that yeah, several, I don't know how many, at least Denmark promised 19 jets to send it to Ukraine will make a huge you know, difference on the battlefield. It's not true, but it will make a difference. You know? It will help us to have at least kind of the equality in, in, in the sky, which, which matters a lot for the infantry. So we hope that this will, will, this will be a big uh, changer uh, and a very positive development for us. And second, yeah, as I said, we need more production of weapons. So <clears throat> I also encourage Danish companies to look at Ukraine as a territory to relocate your production or to create joint ventures. Uh, besides producing new stuff, we also need a lot of engineering and maintenance and repairment uh, of, of the existing uh, machineries which we received already from partners. So it's, it's a big challenge. Every day you ask about uh, casualties. I will tell you a little bit yeah, different things. Every day we are using between, yeah, depending on the situation, I, as I remember correctly, between eight sometimes to 20,000 shells per day. One shell costs 
nowadays between uh, 1,500 euros, maybe 3,000, or because again the situation in Israel also showed that the prices on the on the market jumped. So as you said, does it have any implication? It has because also the the the, the market grows and uh, you need more money to spend for the same. And calculate, let's say, every day we are using up to sometimes 20,000 shells. Multiply 3,000, so it's almost 60 millions of euro a day only for ammunition. Not speaking about fuel, not speaking about tanks, not speaking about yeah, different, different things. Uniform, winter, I mean, war unfortunately is very expensive thing. And uh, we need your support because otherwise there is a huge danger that Ukraine may fall, and if we fall, it doesn't mean that, you know, immediately uh, nothing will happen. Unfortunately, what we observe now on the occupied territories, that Russians take Ukrainians from these occupied territories by force and uh, send them also to, to their own army. And so they are now fighting on, on their behalf, let's say. And it's very dangerous that, yeah, imagine if a Ukraine will fall, 40 million population with uh, half a million professional soldiers now will join again Russian army and will so this is this is a scenario which we all would like to avoid and that is my my just message to, to people please find some energy inside you and enough uh, understanding or, or realization or, or realizing what is at stake and continue supporting us and, and you were also what I what I noted in your plea here is that you're talking about this as this is a scenario that will come. You said once the Russians are at the gates, then it will be your problem. Do you see that as a likely scenario that it's they very, will continue yes. beyond yes. Ukraine? Look, I mean, it's very likely scenario. And uh, why there are a lot of arguments in favor of this. First, the Russian population is prepared for the war. So now they, they are know that they are a country at war and they support this war against Ukraine. Moreover, if you look at the Putin's yeah, narratives in the recent times, he changed also it from fighting against Ukrainians now into fighting against NATO troops. He says that also, yeah, that he is fighting against NATO allies. Do you think he's preparing for a he, World War III? I think he's, he's preparing for a scenario where he would like to grab more territory. So he will be stopped only where he will be stopped. I mean, so he will stop. He will not be satisfied only with the territory of Ukraine. But just days ago, just to uh, not not to be the devil's advocate, but just days ago, uh, he highlighted that Russia has no historical interest in any of the territories that are there. All disputes uh, concerning to the Central European nations were settled uh, decades ago. Uh, look, if you look, uh, you are a journalist, so try to find even in YouTube so many different interviews of Putin where he was saying that Crimea belongs to Ukraine, that they will never attack Ukraine, that yeah, they are not insane people to occupy Crimea, and they did it. So, I mean, we don't believe them, whatever they say, this is first and very important. Second, to prove this, you remember before the war started, we were also exerting quite a big political pressure on Putin. We were asking also leaders of European countries and states to call him and persuade that not to start this war because it's insane. And I know very well that also yeah, different people, President of France or Chancellor of Germany was calling him. And the day even before February 24th, Lavrov the same. They were lying to their partners that they will not attack. They were saying, no, 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 we are not planning any war, so come on. So. Now, again, my message is don't be too naive, don't think that Russia, and if you look at again at what even when Putin started this war, one of the messages for him was, or even before the war, was what? To withdraw or like to return NATO to the borders of 1997. And he wants to see the reaction, you know. So, I mean, in our view, it's time to act and not to think, you know, uh, not, again, forget about na naiveness or how to say. Uh, with regards to Russia and especially to to Putin, so we don't trust him anymore. We don't. I mean, we we the, the, one of the even reasons we we will not hold any negotiations with him because he is a criminal and nobody you know negotiate with terrorists. That should be very clear for everyone. And even when I'm talking also to Danish business, yeah, who are still in Russia or whatever yeah, reasons they have, 
I'm telling them that, look guys, I mean, help us to finish this war. And every single contribution, be it sanction or be it withdrawal from the economy or stop trading with them or stop supplying with something or uh, donating money. I mean, there are so many different ways how people can support Ukraine. You are supporting also to avoid the scenario where you will uh, be forced to send your troops to die. And that's very dangerous in my view. So this is yeah, my, my final message, let's say, yeah, in the capacity of ambassador. But you know, I mean, during all these two years, uh, we have created very huge network uh, in, uh, in Denmark. And I'm, I'm happy to, to say it. And I'm proud of, of uh, having these contacts. So for sure, I will try to continue helping Ukraine in, in, yeah, in my new capacity. I don't know my future yet, but we will see. But whatever it takes. The goal is yeah, to win the war and to push them out of the territory. So to restore international order, rules-based order. Because otherwise, I mean, uh, we will create very fragile basement foundation yeah, for the future uh, world. And then uh, it will be very difficult to plan, to plan things, you know, years ahead. If, if you get used to one of the lessons I learned about Danes, that you are planning your life already for years ahead. Today you can plan your vacation next year or maybe two years yeah, and you are buying tickets already for that. And you will not have this, this possibility. Well, we hope that you will have, on the other hand, the possibility to plan ahead more than one day at a time as things are in Ukraine. Mikhail Vodonik, thank you very much uh, for thank taking you. the time. Thank you. Happy to have, uh, have met you during your thank tenure. You.